Remember this portion of the story of God as it's written in the book that we love from the Revelation chapters 4 and 5. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on a throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped the word of the Lord. How many of you are humming the Messiah right now? <laughs> the lion is one of the most common animal references in the scriptures. I didn't know that. With well over 100 appearances of the word lion in both testaments. But interestingly enough, the, the phrase Lion of Judah is not actually found in the Bible as such. There, the words Lion and Judah are brought together and uh, there is, uh, as we'll find out in Revelation, the Lion from the tribe of Judah, but we've, we've shortened it down and it's become a phrase. It's like a greeting 
on a Christmas card. It's, it's, it's a, a name that even people who aren't churchgoers often know refers to Jesus Christ. It's, it's a favorite. I mean, this is a very dramatic picture. It, it lends itself uh, a lion lends itself to artwork and a, and a portrayal of the dramatic majesty and power of God. Uh, and most of us, uh, 20th century, uh, 21st century, <laughs> some of us 20th century, uh, uh, Christians and evangelicals who are familiar with the works of, uh, of uh, C.S. Lewis are, are, are in love with the character Aslan. I remember reading those Narnian Chronicles when I was 12 years old, and I remember feeling like for the first time, I recognized the allegory, and I thought to myself for the first time that Jesus was somebody that I really wanted to meet because there was, a, there was a, something about this character, Aslan, that was more than just a stuffed shirt. He was, uh, he was power, he was glory, yes, but there was a warmth and, and, a, and a kindness and a grace about him. So we have all of these kind of cultural um, uh, interpretations and, and uh, uses of the short phrase, Lion of Judah. Now in Genesis 49, 8-9, is one of the only two places in the whole of Scripture that the Lion of Judah is alluded to, the words Lion and Judah appear in the blessing that the dying Jacob, who's also known as Israel, the dying Jacob gives his son Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares, who dares to rouse him up. So Judah, who is, by the way, not the first son, the eldest son of Israel, but the fourth son of Jacob. Judah is described as a young lion, ferocious and conquering. The connotation is that Judah's tribe will become the irresistible force that will unify Israel as a nation. Out of Judah would come Israel's most successful kings, David and Solomon, who would rule over all of his brother's tribes, including those of his three elder brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. The earthly parents of Jesus were descendants of Judah, in the lineage, in the family dynasty of David, fulfilling all of God's prophecies to David of an unending dynasty or royal family. The phrase Lion of Judah is a modern phrase. It is a shortened, a contraction. It's a, a shortened version of the name given to Jesus in Revelation 5, 5, which refers to him as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. This name of Jesus is used in connection with a vision, and that's the, 
That was what you were hearing from Scripture this morning. It was the first few verses of, of Revelations chapter 4 and then all of Revelations 5. It is, the, it is uh, uh, in connection with a vision that the Apostle John had in which he was transported in the Spirit to God's throne room that sits at the center of everything. In that vision, John is shown a great scroll or book that is full to overflowing with the plans and the, the judgments of the one who sits on the throne. It contains God's plans regarding the purposes and the final end of creation history. And it is heavily sealed so that no one may enter it. If it was a scroll, it would have been large because scrolls were large, and it would have had seals, and as it was, it had seven seals all along the leading edge of that last bit of the scroll. And when it came time to break those seals, there was a power in those seals that wouldn't allow anyone to open them, and no one was found who was worthy of it. This book is the summing up of all the trials and the tribulations, the hopes and the sacrifices of our history. It not only describes the end of our history, but opening the book will actually bring about the end of our history. The conclusion that we have been invoking in power for 2,000 years, every time we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are the, uh, that is the prayer that is going up to heaven, and this scroll is key to that. Opening the scroll is to, for God's purposes to be fulfilled. But there is no one worthy to open the book, no one strong enough or noble enough to be the bridge over which the grace and the wisdom of the one on the throne can cross over to creation and bring to pass all that he desires. John is heartbroken, and he weeps. And we just read it in the text, and it sounds a little dramatic. I mean, John, you know, pull yourself together, man. Get a cup of coffee, you know. What is going on? Well, but to begin with, John is an old man. And I am sure that every day of his life that's gone by in all of these years since he was a disciple of Jesus Christ, walking with Jesus for three years and probably three of the most extraordinary years of his life, I'm sure that he misses walking, working, weeping, and eating with the Jesus he knew when he was young. In addition to that, John is now old and he is a prisoner of Rome and he is being worked to death in hard labor as an old man in a marble quarry on an island of Patmos because he would not stop preaching the gospel and obeying Jesus Christ. He wants what anybody in that situation would want. Like John the Baptist in prison, he wanted to know, did, did I make a mistake? Did I miss the turn here somewhere? Did I bet on the wrong horse? One of you guys go out and ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another one? John, was a, John, the Apostle John, who's a different John, is, is wondering some of the same questions. He wants vindication. He wants rescue. 
He weeps for a just end to evil and for all things to be made new and good again. How many of you here have read The Lord of the Rings or watched the movies? Okay. Imagine the distress of a Lord of the Rings fan, of which I am. Imagine the distress we would all experience if we had read the first two books and J.R.R. Tolkien died before he got to the third book. Frodo would still be left for spider meat. Minas Tirith would be left unrescued. Aragon and Arwen frustrated in love and the evil of Sauron and the ring unchecked and undiminished. People would not only be sad and distraught, they would be angry for ever having read the first two books to begin with if they couldn't see a conclusion. And this is fiction. It's a great book, but it's still a story. It's make-believe. The book that John is looking at is the book of real life. It's our life, our history. It's the, the ending that we've been praying for for 2,000 years as believers. And nobody's going to be able to open it. That's why John was weeping. One of the elders before the throne of God tells the Apostle John not to despair because the lion from the tribe of Judah, who is also the root of King David, Jesse's son, will open the scroll. This lion can open the seals and bring about the end of death and the renewal of heaven and earth, as well as the final transformation of all of the saints. The title, Lion from the Tribe of Judah, means that Jesus, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of David's line that started with Judah and goes all the way up to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to David's royal family and to all of Israel. The lion is a symbol of power and royalty, and there are few predators more feared than the lion. So where is this lion? The minute that John turns to the direction that the elder was speaking, to see this lion, instead he sees a lamb standing as if slain. That means he's seeing a lamb standing where they thought there was going to be a lion. And what's more, this lamb has been grievously wounded. It's obvious it's a wound received by, uh, like, like a lamb would receive from a priest before it was sacrificed on the altar. It was a wound that should have killed him. And indeed, John knew, looking at it, the wound did kill him. But he is standing. So he is a lamb who is risen. He is alive. Instead of a terrifying lion, John sees a risen lamb. Now, it's not just any lamb. It's a lamb with seven horns. And in, in ancient Near Eastern uh, literature and, and uh, um, sacred writings, horns represent power. 
They represent the, uh, a tremendous amount of power, and, and this lamb has seven of them. Now, it's grotesque when you think about it, actually trying to put a picture of it in your mind, but the seven horns, and seven is the perfect, the, the number of perfection, and those horns would be a perfection of all power is vested in this, in this animal. He has seven eyes also, also very gruesome to think about, but what it really means, what it's pointing to is a, 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 an all-seeing, all-knowing to, to the seven corners of the world, or corners or places of the world. God's wisdom knows everything, sees everything, and nothing escapes him. The power of the lion, especially the lion of Judah, is the earthly power of every king and every nation, the power of conquest and death. And Jesus, we see, we would see in the study of Revelation, Jesus wields death. But that power of the lion cannot open the scroll. The power necessary to redeem, to repair, to reconcile creation to its creator, the power necessary for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done must be greater than the power of death and destruction. The power to open the scroll of God's salvation is a power capable not of forcing a change on creation, but of allowing a change within the Creator. By that I mean the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ's death on behalf of all of us, made it possible for God's holiness to be reconciled to his compassion, for his righteousness and his mercy to be perfectly met and satisfied within his heart without sacrificing anything of either one. It all comes together because of what Jesus did. It's something the lion couldn't do. In this way, Jesus took all that death could do into himself and then took up his life again defeating death and unleashing the power of resurrection in all of us who call on and trust in him. I think the lion makes a better poster. I think the lion makes a better character in the story of Narnia. I like the lion. I think it's cool. I don't know why God didn't go with it, but When John turned around, it wasn't the lion he saw. It was, it was the lion, but it, it, was, it was Jesus Christ, and it was Jesus Christ more perfectly expressed as a lamb that was slain and risen. The power great enough to open the book and to bring about God's deepest will for his creation and establish his kingdom is not the power of death, but the power of love. Sacrificial love. that reached out to us while we were still enemies of God. The Lion of Judah, like I said, I, it, it makes, it's, it's a tremendous symbol and it's powerful and it's beautiful. There are only two references, however, to this name of Jesus found in the whole Bible and neither of them match the phrase exactly. Still most 
modern evangelical Christians are very familiar with the phrase Lion of Judah as the name of Christ. It seems odd that a phrase with such meager representation in the Bible is so well known and loved and renewed and rehearsed and celebrated over and over again in Christian art. We favor the ways of the lion because we understand the power of death better than we understand the power of love. We prefer stories that teach us that doing good is a matter of slaying evil giants like Goliath, or routing the enemies of God like the Philistines. For all of our history, our species, all of us, not just believers, have used power to destroy and kill to overthrow evil. We deal death to do good. That's how twisted up we are. I mean, in our heads we know it's necessary. But we also in our hearts know that there's something wrong. To do good, we must do death. Hmm. Sacrificial love is poetic and it's beautiful, especially when it's in the context of a caring relationship where there's a hope of mutual respect and, and a desire to love each other, but its results are unreliable in the cold, cruel world. And yet, here's Jesus, introduced as the lion, but when John turns around, it's not the lion, it's the lamb that he sees. And it goes from one great power to a greater power. Jesus' example proves that God's greatest power to overthrow the worst kind of evil is the exercise of his sacrificial love for us, even while we were still his enemies. In this life, don't get me wrong, in this life, we regulate ourselves and our neighbors with the power of the lion. And I know of no other way to do it. Brute strength, lethal skill. Our societies depend on it. But the kingdom of heaven will be a very different place because its king, its king will be different. And before we enter it, we will be made different. Today, if we as Christians act with love and self-sacrifice, relying on our own strength and our own wisdom, we will find ourselves abused and defeated because the spirit of this age is himself a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Death will win. The power of Christmas is not the love that is in our hearts, despite what Disney and, what's that other? The Hallmark want to tell you, exactly. The power of Christmas is swaddled up in Jesus Christ and him alone. Our best intentions, our most determined efforts at love have been have very disappointing track records because we aren't very good at it. We're very selfish. And, and we don't even know how selfish we are. And it trips us up. Our ignorance of how to love 
is worse than our own selfishness. Our wisdom lacks insight because we don't know our own hearts, let alone the heart of the one that we want to love. But Jesus, the death-conquering lamb, offers us a chance to employ the power of his love even in this world, in this broken, dark age. In John 15, he tells us the only way that we can be channels and portals of heaven's throne room into our world. We must abide in him. I want to read John 15, 4 to 8. Abide in me. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples just before he dies. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. I, I have been challenged by the last letter I wrote, or I read from Andy and Amy in uh, their adventures with a, a young man, uh, one of the indigenous uh, residents, one of the islands there who... Uh, has been involved in, in robbing and lying and conning them. And then it comes from a family whose kind of reputation and occupation is to do those things. And Andy and Amy know that he's good at playing them, and they, they suspect that they're being played. But they are going to love in the name of Jesus Christ, and they are holding that up in prayer to him, knowing that they can't do this in their own power. Our love, our greatest act of love is to open a door from our life so that the power, the spirit of Jesus Christ can go out of that into the other person's life. We cannot affect the power of love in another person's life. We can only open up and let Christ's power change. The overwhelming power of the risen lamb will not be perfected in creation until he returns. But I'm intrigued and I'm encouraged by the thought that if I were to learn how to act in sacrificial love while abiding in him and relying on his power, I might find more joy. More joy in serving him and more success in defeating evil and death. Hopelessness and despair as I care for others and, and dealing with others who are dealing with their own hopelessness and despair. I won't ever advocate defunding the police or dismantling our military. I don't for a minute believe that a just society is remotely possible this side of the second coming. But I do believe, I do believe that I can be more like Jesus and live in the power of the risen lamb and that who knows what Jesus will do with that. Anything we do to reflect that life and love that is in Christ, it's we are still relying on him 
to be the power and the wisdom that guides that power. If I learn how to surrender to him and grow in abiding. The Lion of Judah is mighty. But the conquering power of the risen Lamb is greater, even in this chaotic and irrational world. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we prepare to pray again this song that we've learned for the holiday, I thank you that abiding in you is the key to good discipleship. Because in it, we not only gain power to do what is good, what you've called us to do, more importantly, it is in itself, it is the end in itself. Abiding in you is what we will spend eternity doing and when we finally get the hang of it. So I thank you, Lord, that we can start even now. And I pray that you would bless us in that as we try to be faithful to you. For I ask this in your name. Amen.